Thanks very much. Sorry, uh, I will have probably to do it like this. I'm really glad to be here. I'm just afraid to maybe disappoint you. No, no, no. I know this is also what I always say. But this time, really, because I think this talk was announced as uh, doing with actual political situation and so on and so on. But I prefer precisely not to do this. I think that in, in crazy times like this, the whole point is to maintain, sustain the dignity of theory, you know. And even, I'm even ready to draw a political consequence of this. I remember when I was young, after 68 and so on, it was that those in power, at that point the moderate right, were politicians, people of power, were using um, uh, this kind of pseudo-dignified language, nice words and so on, while the radical left to provoke used in their public appearances, F-words and so on, vulgarities. Now, I hope you notice it, it's the opposite. You get all the vulgarity already from those in power. And I wouldn't be afraid to say that uh, maybe it's time, if we still want to be leftist, for us, the left, because it's in a way true, to change the rules and to claim, which is in a way, again, true, my God, we are the ones who stand for silent moral majority, simple dignity, good manners, and so on and so on. They are the, the vulgar guys. They break all the rules and so on. It's a, you, that's why I appreciate Bernie Sanders. She entered a territory, you know, before Bernie, I don't have any illusions about Bernie, but he did something extremely important. Before him, the left was this politically correct left, ma uh, 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 fighting for marginals, and so on. It's okay, it's okay. But they lost contact with all this mythic, uh, disappointed, desperate, ordinary people, and so on. And I think now we have a unique chance to connect with those people. And if we miss this chance, it will be very sad. That's why, for example, if I talk, if I use uh, uh, your beloved president's language, one of the enemies of the people now is Nancy Pelosi, I think. You know why? In her, no, 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 nothing against her. He is a liberal, blah, blah. But instead of maintaining this, uh, emergency state, which should be. Did you notice how in all her latest interventions, she's trying to renormalize the situation? Already a month ago, at some public debate, no, she said, okay, things happen. We had Ronald Reagan for eight years, then we came back. We had Bush for eight years, we came back, and it will be the same here. I'm afraid it will not be the same here. Something extraordinary happened. The rules are changing. So, uh, okay, I will not get lost into that. I, I could. I just want to tell you that, uh, to begin with a small joke, you remember when your beloved president uh, uh, said about that, uh, the strange uh, Sweden, uh, attack in Sweden the last night, no? I was immediately, I immediately remembered, you know, the most famous line from Sherlock Holmes' stories, from Silver Blaze, when... Um, uh, Sherlock Holmes asks Inspector Lestrade, his idiot companion, uh, uh, do you remember the incident with the dog last night? 
Lestrator who says, but nothing happened with the dog last night, and then Sherlock Holmes answered, that was the curious incident, no? Like, I remember, wasn't something like this with Trump? Like, do you remember the strange incident in Sweden, like, last night? Nothing happened in Sweden last night, that was the curious incident, <laughs> and so on, you know. Okay, uh, but uh, not to lose time here, I must tell you something, and I'm not alone, surprisingly. You know what I'm also afraid of two things, at least, with Trump. One thing, don't underestimate this possibility, is that for a couple of years he may succeed. What if there will not be an economic catastrophe? What if he will show enough flexibility to somehow patch relations with China, with Russia, and so on? And there are even signs that with immigrants, that he will do something very dirty. After all the big talk, he will throw some of them out, but not to disturb your beloved middle classes who like to have cheap uh, Mexican immigrant workers. He will just allow enough of them so that you will still have the cheap. So he may relatively succeed for a couple of years. You know, don't. Uh, that's why here I will say something which is maybe not popular. Although I love them, I follow their shows, but all this how should I call it, comicalization, comedization, you know, who is, uh, at least academic intellectuals, what do they usually follow against Trump? It's mostly, you know, John Stewart and all that comedy and so on. Well, don't laugh too much, you know. I don't like this approach of just making fun of Trump because, you know, then we will be laughing on and on and Trump will be winning. Doesn't this tell you something? This is for me, since we are here... At least both of us are card-carrying Lacanians, <laughs> more or less, yeah. Uh, uh, that uh, the big, just, by God, you have to think what happened with the, think about it with the election of Trump. For example, do you remember a couple of months ago how, how often, almost every week towards the end, the press declared Trump just committed public suicide? when he did some alleged mistake, it's over. And then they got it that it only helped him. So they totally, if I may use uh, uh, that wonderful, I almost respect George Bush the Younger, he coined that properly Freudian word, you remember, don't misunderestimate or whatever. <laughs> don't misunderestimate Trump. The very thing, they, the very thing that were perceived as final mistakes, finally he killed himself, he uh, of, uh, helped him. And it tells a lot about how people identified with him. Precisely when we thought we caught him, many people perceived this as he's one of us, uh, liberals, arrogant, attacking him, and so on and so on. Uh, so uh, again, it's hard work to be done. It's not enough to laugh at Trump. It's easy to do that. Now it's no longer John Stewart, although he reappears, returns from the dead from time to time. It's more John Oliver and all the others, but I always feel that there is something terribly wrong in that approach, because we will be dying laughing and he will be doing better and better, but okay. Enough of this, I'm sorry, you will have to go through a serious talk, precisely I mean, it's almost something in my nature resists it, that I will this time really do 
something that fits the title, no? <laughs> which is from surplus uh, value to surplus enjoyment or what. No? Okay, surplus value, obvious uh, Marxist reference. So I would like to begin with a short remark of the relevance of Marxist critique of political economy in our era of global capitalism. I agree with Alain Badiou that not only is Marxist critique of political economy his outline of the capitalist dynamics still actual, one should even make a step further and claim that it is only today with global capitalism that reality arrived at its notion, the notion of Marx. That is to say, it is as if Marx was writing for today's time. But as we learned from Hegel, at this very moment when reality is at the level of Marxist capital, this moment of triumph is always also the moment of defeat. We also see where Marx did not go far enough. What were his limitations? That's the nice paradox. Now we are in the times described abstractly by Marx, full capitalist reality, and it's with wonderful ironies. For example, I once met uh, Fukuyama at some debate, and he laughed. I told him, listen, maybe you were right, no, global capitalist, but do you admit that communists, where they are still in power, China, Vietnam, nonetheless survived as the best managers of capitalist economy? So what I want to say is that precisely today, to remain faithful to Marx, we have to go further. We have to clearly identify the limitations of Marx and so on and so on. In this sense, it is in this spirit that I want to combine Marx and Jacques Lacan and in the first part of my talk, and I doubt if there will be time for the second part, <laughs> we will see. I would like to begin with some very elementary things about what is Lacan's basic conceptual contribution. What new thing did he bring, Lacan, in his reading of uh, psychoanalysis? In his seminar, uh, 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 Le Non Deep Air from 73-74, and it's typically Lacanian title, Le Non Deep Air. It means Le Non Deep, those who are not taken into illusion. Air, they are in the wrong. Like, it's a wonderful dialectical thought that sometimes to see how things really are, you err the most. You don't see the point. <coughs> As always with Lacan, there is here already also a wordplay, because if you, pronounce, if you pronounce it quickly in French, le nom du père also means names of the father. Okay, but let's not go into that. At the, in his typical arrogant way, uh, Lacan asks the question. He speaks, of course, he was a megalomaniac in the third person about himself. He said, he, Lacan, what was it that Lacan, who is here present, invented? Then he answers, he says, like that, to get things going, object A, l'objet A. He said, uh, uh, so it's typical that when he's pressed to isolate, what did he really bring new? 
It's not any of the usual phrases, like desire is the desire of the other, the unconscious is structured like language, there is no sexual relationship. He says, my true invention is objectita, the object small a, the object cause of desire. And as we can immediately see anyone who knows Lacan, Although he uses this term from the very beginning of his teaching, this term gets really elaborated only from the late 60s, 70s, when Lacan massively returns to reading Capital. It's a clear connection between Lacan's object small a as the so-called plus de jouir, surplus enjoyment, and Marxist surplus mervert, surplus value. So, to begin with, I would simply like to elaborate on this link. I will treat you as idiots, but don't be afraid, the real idiot here is me, in the sense of I'm obsessed with this idea that one should state things as clearly as possible. So, to explain what is object A, I would like to begin, I'm sorry if some of you know this example of mine already, with uh, uh, Pokemon Go, the game. I think there we can see not only object A, but how it is useful for our everyday ideology. As you know, I'm sorry if I treat you like idiots now, Pokemon Go is a location-based augmented reality game, typically played on mobile phones. So players use the device's GPS and camera to capture, battle, and train virtual creatures, Pokemon, who appear on the screen as if they were in the same real-world location as the player. As players travel the real world, their avatar moves along, with, along the game's map. This augmented reality mode is what makes Pokemon Go different from other PC games. Instead of taking us out of the real world and drawing us into artificial virtual space, it combines the two. We look at reality and we interact with reality through the fantasy frame of the digital screen. And this frame supplements reality with virtual elements which sustain our desire to participate in the game, pushing us to look for them in a reality which, without this frame, would leave us indifferent. Sounds familiar, this simple description? Of course it does. What the technology of Pokemon Go externalizes is simply, I claim, the basic mechanism of ideology. At its most basic, ideology is the primordial version of augmented reality. Again, to simplify things to the utmost, did Hitler not offer the Germans in 1930s the fantasy frame of Nazi ideology, which made them see a specific Pokemon, the Jew, of course. You know, just imagine what do you do with Pokemon game. You, again, that's the crucial thing. That's the greatness of this game. It's not you are drawn into some imaginary world. You are there, but you see more than it is. And that's, in a very vague parallel, the achievement, if I use this obscene word, of na Nazism. You walk along the street and you see Pokemons. You see uh, Jewish plot and so on and so on. Uh, the Jew was popping up all around and provided the clue to what one has to fight against. And I think the same uh, 
holds for all other ideological pseudo-entities which have to be added to reality in order to make it complete and meaningful. For example, one can easily imagine, and a friend told me that they already exist, they are pirated, bad copies, but nonetheless in Germany, uh, uh, anti-immigrant versions of Pokemon Go, where you wander around a German city and then you have a Muslim immigrant popping up, uh, an Arab uh, rapist popping up, and so on and so on. Uh, now, of course, you will immediately counterattack. Is the anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, which makes us see the Jewish plot as the source of our troubles, not radically different from the Marxist approach, which observes social life as the battleground of economic and other power struggles. Because, of course, uh, in Germany's left already tried to answer this with constructing the leftist version of Pokemon Go. Like, you see rich bankers, you see capital behind. Uh, but I think there is a big difference. Uh, in Marxism, the secret beneath all the confusion of social life are social antagonisms, not individual agents which can be personalized in the guise of Pokemon figures. Uh, Pokemon Go does, does in an inherent way tend towards ideologically personalized perception of social antagonisms. In the case of bankers threatening us from all around, it is easy to see how such a figure can easily be appropriated by a fascist populist ideology of plutocracy as opposed to honest, productive capitalists and so on and so on. So let's not go into it. I only want to say this, that isolate the basic mechanism of Pokemon Go. We live in gray, boring reality. You add a fantasy frame which makes you see something more, hidden figures in reality, which also triggers your desire. All of a sudden, you become an engaged observer, you look for Pokemon and so on. And this would be, again, ideology at its most elementary, and at the same time, the function of object small a. Object small a is precisely, in very elementary sense, the object cause of your desire, what you add to reality to be vulgar, to make it interesting. And uh, here also we see in what sense object A functions, because the whole point is that this object A for the Nazis, the Jew, uh, should remain unseen. It is hidden behind, but you shouldn't see it too clearly. If object A becomes, is perceived as, di I thought this is a reminder, Pokemon is answering, <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> is seen as directly part of reality, you become a psychotic, you know. The point is, is that it should remain unseen, a mystery, and so on, and so on. But you get the point. It is something which uh, allows you to read confused reality. It makes it readable. We should never forget, apropos anti-Semitism, this wonderful ambiguity of the, uh, of the English word plot. It's at the same time plot in the narrative sense and plot in the sense of Jewish plot. That's what Hitler did. By adding the Jew in the sense of the Jewish plot, he 
allowed to ordinary Germans to make the situation readable. You know, you are confused, inflation, whatever, economic chaos. But then Hitler said, Jewish plot, ah, now I see it clearly. And we don't have time for it today, but it would be so interesting to uh, read the transformation of anti-Semitism today. That's why I'm telling to my Jewish friends, beware of the people like Donald Trump, because around Trump especially, they exemplify what I call, and I thought I was exaggerating, as they usually say, well, Rizek is provocative or whatever. <laughs> but it's more and more true. Namely, a new entity is emerging, getting stronger and stronger. It's called, I call it, Zionist anti-Semitism. There is no contradiction in what people around Trump are doing. They are at the same time pro-Zionist in the sense of supporting Israel and anti-Semitic in the sense of, but Jews here shouldn't have too much influence. And there is a long line in fascism of this ambiguous attitude. Just when we were driving here, I told, and you probably knew about it, to <coughs> Henry in a history, in a history thick book of SS, the Nazi SS. I found a wonderful quote from Reinhard Heydrich, you know, the architect of Holocaust, who wrote that Jewish people are wonderful, productive people. We should have good relations with them. We just cannot mix with them. And then he elaborates a plan of helping them to emigrate to Palestine, supporting them even just they should be there, not here. If they are there, Heydrich says we can have wonderful economic uh, relations and so on and so on. And this is the predominant line. There is no contradiction. Some people say, but, but many guys around Trump are anti-Semitic. How can be pro-Israeli? That's the, that's the strategy of the, of the new right today. This paradox of Jews are good if they are there, protecting us against the Arabs. Although it's even more interesting. I always loved uh, conspiracy theories. This is today's even moderate right. Now we have radical right all around Europe. It's really living crazy times. Which go, who, they go a step further. The theory is this one. The Arab or Palestinian-Israeli conflict is a fake. It just takes to blur the fundamental thing happening. Uh, Jews are organizing mass Arab migration to Europe to ruin European Christianity. They literally use the word Muslim Zionist plot. This is why in Slovenia, my country, we have some right-wing commentators who claim George Soros is incarnation of the devil today. Because he is a Jew who is helping the immigrants. There you see the truth and so on. I don't have time to go into this. I just say this to make you aware how with all the horrors at Trump, immigration and so on, don't forget about the basic things that he is doing at the level of forum. As a good Marxist, I'm always a formalist. Forum matters. Like, did you notice how Trump destroyed or lowered the level of public debate. Things that it was possible to say them publicly 
It, sorry, it was not possible to say them publicly some 10, 15 years ago. He just does it. This terrible regression of public speech is something terrifying. Now you will say, but I'm just concerned with forms and so on. No, forms matter. You know, and that was my point. I was misunderstood apropos torture. I am, I think forum matters there. I can well understand, I always say this to provoke people and so on. I, in a totally desperate situation, I cannot promise you that I wouldn't torture someone. I can, I'm not saying that I will. Let's imagine this ridiculous scenario, you know, somebody kidnaps my daughter, and I know that the guy that I have in my hands knows where the do my daughter is kept. Ooh, well, out of pure despair, again, I would try not to do it, but I cannot guarantee to you <laughs> that I will not do it. But for that very reason, it's important not to legalize it. You get the point. If I do it, I should be all the time aware that out of pure despair, I'm doing something absolutely terrifying. The horror is the normalization of it. That you know Alan Dershowitz's vision. We legalized it before you are tortured, doctor examines you, you should be tortured in this way, in that way, or whatever. And here is the problem with Trump. Let me give you a vulgar example, which I think clarifies in what sense he is really vulgar. Once he was praising his wife, Melania, and you know, she is extra popular in Slovenia. You know why? <laughs> she is from there, you know. We already have a Melania cake, a Melania wine, and so on. <laughs> Big tourist industry projects. But, and to show how refi a refined lady she is, Trump says that in all the time that they are living together, I will not use the vulgar F word, he said that not once did he hear her emit the sound of flatulence or whatever. But you see what is wrong here. Although he wanted to praise her as a noble girl, sorry, but you don't talk about this in the public. You know what I mean? The very fact that he mentions it was an incredible vulgarity. You don't talk about this in public. I mean, I mean what would you say if to... to to, to, to describe to you what a refined person I am, I would now start to go into detail how I cheat, how I do it. You don't do this. Okay, let's go on. And, and the third thing is that it's not only Trump. You know what is now? I will propose another crazy idea for the left. We need more dogmaticism, I claim. There is a very good sense of dogmaticism, which is, I think, one way to measure the relative progress of societies. How certain moral norms are simply dogmatically accepted. For example, I wouldn't like to live in a society where you have to debate again and again why women shouldn't be raped. I want to live in a society where this is dogmatically accepted as a fact, so that if you get some crazy guy who says, eh, but women really like it, they just are too hypocritical to admit, blah, blah, you don't even argue. The guy 
disqualifies himself is perceived as an idiot. So when we start to debate things which should be absolutely clear, it's always a critical point. You see, at some point, we precisely shouldn't debate everything. Again, the fact that we started to debate torture again, it's a bad sign. But okay, let's not lose too much time here. This was just the first idea of uh, object A. That mysterious surplus entity that you add and which allows you to perceive reality in a meaningful way. If I may use some of my old jokes uh, to explain to you, maybe some of you know it, I'm sorry, this, how this surplus object, in the case of anti-Semitism, the Jew functions. Uh, uh, let me uh, give you an example. When I was young, I saw, of course, it was played everywhere. You remember Spielberg's first big hit, The Joss. Okay, it was a livid debate among uh, cultural theorists. What does the shark stand for? What does it mean? <laughs> we had majority of left cultural theorists read the shark as the embodiment of bourgeois, uh, paranoiac, anti-immigrant fears. Shark stands for the attack of uh, natural disasters, immigrants, whatever. The threat from outside onto American life. Now, uh, Fidel Castro, I remember, proposed the opposite theory. Fidel Castro loved the movie, and he said, it's clear, shark is the, big capi uh, the big power of big capital and bankers who are exploiting ordinary people and so on. But who was right? I claim, and that's the mystery of ideology. They were all right and nobody was right. The way ideology functions is this one. Ordinary people in their everyday lives have many fears, obsessions, and so on. You fear nature, you fear big capital, you fear immigrants, whatever. And the trick of ideology is to replace all this inconsistent multitude of fears with one object. You fear the shark and all other fears are somehow almost in the Hegelian sense aufgehoben, sublated in this fear. That's how ideology works. And my point is, it's exactly in the same way that anti-Semitism works. Uh, this is why you can notice it how in classical anti-Semitism, how contradictory the figure of the Jew is. Jews are at the same time at least in European anti-Semitism. Uh, oh, they work too much. You know, it's this fear, my God, we have ordinary fun. Jews just work all the night. No wonder they beat us at exams or whatever. And they're supposed to be lazy, exploiting us. They're supposed to be too intellectual. At the same time, too vulgar, seducing our girls and so on and so on. You see, it's the same operation. You have many fears as a small bourgeois. You fear big finances. You fear vulgar guys raping your daughter, whatever. But all these fears are projected onto the figure of the Jew. And Jew, in this sense, Jew is the Pokemon. You see, you add a Jew, and then you have all these mysteries of objects mole. The, the more, the, this is also why, I don't have time to go into it. This is also why I don't believe this simplistic leftist dogma that uh, uh, Muslim immigrants are today's Jews. 
No, it's more complex. I'm not in any way trying to uh, take sides, claim that one is less dangerous than the other, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism. But uh, uh, I think it was that Chicago uh, 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 Marxist, I forgot his name, who is doing the reading of capital detailed books. Chicago, my name will come to me. Uh, Who draw attention to one thing. Whatever you think about uh, immigrants coming here to the United States, Mexican, or in Europe from Middle East, nobody claims that they are invisible among us and that they really pull the strings. No, they are perceived precisely as all too visible and chaotic. Nobody claims that they are the hidden masters. If they are hidden masters, they are the ones who pull the strings behind the immigrants. And they, they start to function as Jews again. So we have to be very careful here. But uh, 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 back to anti-Semitism. The crucial thing here is to see how the Jew, although it's supposed to be the name of that mis- mysterious agent behind all our troubles, uh, 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 sexual depravity, finances, uh, press, liberal press is lying, and so on, or Jews control it. At the same time, this Jew has nothing to do, at least directly not, with empirical Jews, It's precisely like Pokemon, what we add to reality, and this is crucial in, sorry, I'm repeating another of my old lines of thought, but I think it's important today, uh, in to analyze racism. Uh, We should always apply to it, I claim, Lacan's wonderful saying, Jacques Lacan, of course, that uh, uh, even, let's say we have a man, it can also be a woman, but okay, I will use Lacan's example, which is a little bit sexist. He says that when a man is pathologically jealous about his wife, that she is sleeping around serially with other men, Lacan says, even if all the man's fears are true, even if his, uh, even his wife is really sleeping around with other men, his jealousy is no less pathological. Because you see, the true problem of pathological jealousy is not, is my wife really doing it? And then, if yes, then okay, I'm normal. No, the true question is, why do I cling, why do I need jealousy to ascertain my identity? Why do I need jealousy? And exactly the same holds for anti-Semitism. If you debate with an anti-Semitic guy, or with, here the logic is the same, or with the uh, uh, Islamophobe and so on, you should never accept the debate at the level of facts. Okay, we should openly admit the facts. And I hear, I go very far here. I claim that the big mistake in Europe is that liberal leftists practically prohibited the topic of openly confronting the serious problem of cultural clashes with immigrants. The price we are paying is now that the right-wing immigrant parties are winning. But I'm saying something else. Okay, my other plastic example, I'm sorry if some of you know it. Let's say we are in the mid-30s in Germany. I am debating anti-Semitism with a guy who is not my friend, who is a Nazi. 
uh, uh, the moment I accept the debate at the level of facts, like, are Jews really like that? I sold my soul to the devil. What would have been the result? Jews, he claims Jews are seducing our girls. What can I say? I hope they do, and I hope we are seducing Jewish girls and so on. Of course, there is always something true in it. You know, what, you see what I mean? You, and then the conclusion will just be, okay, anti-Semites maybe exaggerate a little bit, but there is something in it. Or Jews are exploiting us. Well, some of the Jews were rich. And of course, in some formal sense, they did exploit Germans. Jews controlled the press. Well, it is a statistic fact that the percentage of Jews among lawyers and journalists was higher than their percentage in general population. But this is not, my God, what anti-Semitism is about. What anti-Semitism is about is precisely why does do the fascists need the figure of the Jew to define their project? Why do they need the Jew? Not are Jews really like that? In this sense, Jew is what Jacques Lacan called the zero signifier, the signifier without signified. In what sense? All signification, actual signification in the, of course, anti-Semitic figure of the Jew is, are our everyday inconsistent fears. You just add the name Jew, and it's the same as, I'm sorry if I repeat myself, it's my favorite joke from, uh, 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 a wonderful joke from Poland, it's, although I am a leftist, but I love this joke, and, uh, and an anti-communist joke, or rather anti-socialist, it goes like this. You know, you must remember that the official ideology of really existing socialism was that socialism is the synthesis of all the highest achievements of humanity. No? And okay, the joke goes like this. Our Polish socialism is the achievement synthesis of all the highest elements from human history. From, from pre-class tribal societies, it took barbarian primitivism. From uh, ancient slave societies, it took uh, slavery. From medieval times, it took brutal domination. From capitalism, it took exploitation. And now comes the beauty. From socialism, it took the name. <laughs> but you see the point. Socialism, the, in this sense, empty signifier. As Lacan puts it in a very precise way, at some point, as Lacan puts it, signifier falls into the signified. The name just don't, doesn't just designate a thing, but you need the name to, like, you know, it's in a way the name, Jew, the anti-Semitic name, which performatively constructs the anti-Semitic uh, the anti-Semitic figure of the Jew. This is why, again, uh, you cannot fight any racism effectively. Of course, we should do it, my God. We should openly confront the problem, show these are all lies, and so on. But don't get too much into illusions. For example, I had here already a conflict 30 years ago with my friend, but things turned back, back towards the end, uh, Ernesto Laclau, who said that there is a tension between ide ideological figure of a Jew or any other racist entity, like the racist, of course, anti-Semitic figure of the Jew, and everyday experience. He says, 
Look, let's say I live in Germany in the 30s. I see the Jew. I, I know, I follow ideology, Jews, horror, bankers, they control everything. But then my neighbor is a, an, a good old Jewish couple. And I see they are ordinary kind people, and this limits my anti-Semitism. It's difficult to combine the two. I mean, every day when I met them, when I go to pick up my newspaper, whatever, I have to admit, but look, they are nice people and so on. I totally disagree with this view. I told him in a very evil way, you don't know what anti-Semitism is. Because if you are true, a truly anti-Semitic guy, you say, let's say you are my neighbor. You see, he pretends to be kind. That's why they are dangerous. They hide their evil by being overkind and so on. You know, if you are really in ideology, even the facts which seem to, uh, which seem to undermine it ultimately... Help, uh, ultimately, uh, help you do uh, help you doing it. So, uh, okay, let's not get lost. This would be the first element. Object A S. Think about again the figure of the Jew in anti-Semitism. This mythic entity, which you, it's like Pokemon. You add it to reality to make it meaningful. But this is not all. At the same time, what Lacan calls object A is something that is an object, a surplus object, something that, as it were, falls into our reality from nowhere. I will quote you a scene from Hitchcock's, Alfred Hitchcock's conversations with Francois Truffaut. There is a wonderful passage where Hitchcock describes to Truffaut the quintessential scene that he wanted to insert into North by Northwest. He never, Hitchcock, shot this scene. And he was right because precisely it's too open, too direct, in the sense of it lays bare the ideological mechanism precisely of surplus enjoyment in a too clear way. I will describe this scene, a brief quote. I wanted to have a long dialogue between Cary Grant and one of the factory workers at the Ford car plant as they walk along the assembly line. Behind them, a car is being assembled piece by piece. Finally, the car they've been being put together from a simple nut and bolt is complete with gas and oil all ready to drive off the line. The two men look at each other and say, isn't it wonderful? They open the door of the car and out drops a corpse. You know, it's pure surplus. Like, you see everything, how it was combined, but out of nowhere the corpse comes. I think for the Marxist reading of this scene, it's very important that what we see here is something that we see very rarely in a Hollywood movie, the production process. And... Uh, the corpse that mysteriously drops out from nowhere is a perfect stand-in for the surplus value which is generated out of nowhere through the production process. This corpse is the surplus object at its purest. Uh, let me use another example of this surplus. Uh, 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 I, I, have, I must confess to my guilty pleasures. 
I watch many dirty TV series, and among others, I don't really like it, but I got caught into this compulsion. You know, this is being a being of desire at its lowest. Sometimes you watch a show, and you know you shouldn't do it, it's disgusting, and so on, but you cannot help it, you have to go on. Okay, one of my guilty pleasures was the TV series Castle. Maybe some of you saw it. Sorry. Uh, no, no, I have ma many dark secrets. One, my wife wanted to divorce me for watching Fifty Shades Darker, you know. So you cannot imagine how low I can go, you know. Uh, so uh, you know what the story is about, uh, uh, the, the premise of the series. Richard Castle, a best-selling detective writer, collaborates with Kate Beckett, a New York Police Department homicide detective in solving various murder cases in New York City. Beckett is initially infuriated at the thought of working with a writer, but the two, of course, soon start developing feelings for each other, and, as expected, the overarching plot of the series focuses <coughs> on the growing romance between the two. The ongoing murder investigation is thus clearly the object A, the object cause of their mutual desire, a pretext which compels them to spend a lot of time together. The problem is, of course, what will happen when they finally admit their love for each other and enter a full erotic relationship. Will they still need the pretext of murder investigations? You know, this is for me... Uh, in a very elementary way. The most interesting aspect of what Lacan calls object mole. It's what causes your desire, but what is usually directly experienced as an obstacle to it. For example, maybe you know this joke, I used it in one of my books, I'm sorry if you do, but it's perfect. My friend, the British half, okay, Lacanian, we uh, Lacanians are the last Stalinist, you know, everybody, you included, are suspicious, you know, are you really, and so on. Uh, he told me, it's a wonderfully simple example, but it makes the point clear. He told me that once he had a patient who told him of a slip of tongue he made. He invited a lady to a rich restaurant in a hotel, and of course, standard scenario. He wanted to take her to dinner, and then maybe later we will get a room up there. But something weird happened. When they entered the restaurant, he said, instead, a table for two, please, a bed for two, please. No, no, no. <laughs> now comes Lacanian genius of uh, Darian Leader. He told me, it's totally wrong to interpret this slip of tongue as the standard Freudian notion that, you know, uh, uh, dinner was just a pretext, he was already thinking at what will happen later. Daniel Little told me, no, it was the opposite. The guy was afraid that he will enjoy dinner too much. And it was more a control, like, I should never forget that really my duty will be, <laughs> like, the message was, don't enjoy the pretext too much, you know. Remember your... It's, and it's literally true. If I can make a little confession, uh, I'm not embarrassed because it's 40 years ago, even more. Uh, but uh, a similar thing happened to me. When I was in high school, I had a girlfriend, and Slovenia was slightly conservative. That is to say, at that point, to gain free access to the girl, she was still part of the family. 
she hinted at me, visit my father, talk to him. Okay, I did that. But her father was a wonderful intellectual. <laughs> and although officially I thought, okay, I just have to go through this nightmare of talking with her father, I noticed that I started to enjoy too much the conversation with the father, you know. And she got it, and I lost her. She said, okay, fuck off if you want. Talk directly to my father. Don't leave me out of it. This is the... In so here I claim you... Uh, I will now, in a second, just a second, I will show you the beginning of... Uh, it is, I think, uh, it is the... Uh, Episode four of the fifth, uh, fifth season, I'm not sure, where they already live together. So, and uh, he, Richard Castle, invites her to his Hampton, in Hampton Villa and so on, and just when they are about to make love, she provocatively drops off her bathrobe, and then, okay, they look at each other, with desire. Now we'll do it. But I claim, maybe it's my projection, if you look at close, you can see how this pure desire to do it is already mixed with some, my God, will we really have simply to do it, you know? And then at that point, a corpse enters <laughs> near the swimming pool and oh, they got their object of desire. <laughs> please, let's do it. Listen. Sure, Oh. What? Somebody's coming. What? Oh. Oh, no, no, no. Do you think? Okay, you can even stop. Okay. But you see, this is, again, I think they shouldn't have shot this shit because it's too vulgar, too direct. That's the mystery of the series. You need an obstacle. The object A is not her. The object A, object A, as Lacan puts it, is not the object of your desire, which is usually at least another human being, but it, what makes you desire. And that's the nice part, although it's a pretty boring, repetitive series. How, you know, you can see when they are together, like, and they have to spend later in the series, when they live together, it's like, oh, where is the phone call? They discovered a corpse, you know, nothing works without, uh, without uh, the corpse. So again, uh, uh, and here we can dwell on this. Uh, I used another example in some of my books, I hope you don't know it. Uh, a lady whom I met in Latin America, she was still very beautiful in the 40s, and uh, I don't know what she flirting with me. I'm a total idiot here, but the point is what she told me. She told me that when her last lover saw her naked, he told her that if she just were to lose two, three pounds, her body would have been perfect. And I think I did the right Lacanian intervention when I told her, just don't lose two, three pounds. Because, you know, this is the paradox of object A. It's that things which appears to spoil your beauty, but retroactively it creates it. You have to have two, I'm sorry for this 
but we can make other examples. I'm sorry, I'm aware I make politically correct self-criticism for this macho chauvinist uh, example, but you, you see, I hope, the logic in it, that uh, what seems to disturb her perfect beauty, two, three pounds more, too much, is what retroactively creates it. If you take it back, you would also, you know, if you take back the disturbing element, you also lose the perfection of what this element was disturbing. You don't get pure beauty. So this would be the second functioning of object A. First, that, like Jew Jewish plot narrative, then the obstacle, which appears as an obstacle, but has as such a positive function. You take away the obstacle, you lose the thing itself. The third aspect, now we do a little bit more theoretical work. The third aspect of object A is this Object A as surplus enjoyment in parallel with Marx's notion of mere wert, surplus value. And this is again the great motive of Lacan's teaching in the 70s. This link between surplus enjoyment and surplus value. Uh, I mean, I should only point out here to a good book by the guy who is here, Todd McGowan. Uh, uh, what's the title of your stupid book? Uh, Capitalist Desire, where he points out in a wonderful way how, uh, in a way, the, 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 the uh, apologists of capitalism are right when they claim capitalism is natural and so on, in the sense that there is a certain paradox of desire. You always need a surplus, fun, uh, constitutive instability, whatever you get, it's never that, which is covered in all other ethico-religious libidinal economies. You think there is a God, some supreme being, where you reach the balance. But, but this truth about the constitutive instability, this mixture of lack and surplus, in, Capitalism, in capitalism, it, it breaks open, and capitalism, through this consumerist paradox or paradox of, uh, of capitalist circulation, which is basically instable, you know, in contrast to other systems, capitalism is always in an imbalance. It, it doesn't have any natural balance state. It can reproduce itself only through self-expansion and so on and so on. So, uh, Again, the crucial point here is the Freudian notion of what he calls Lustgewinn, a gain of pleasure, uh, which does not designate a simple stepping up of pleasure, but the additional pleasure provided by the very formal detours in the subject effort, in the subject's effort to attain pleasure. Think about how much a process of seduction gains with its intricate innuendos, false denials, and so on, and so on. It, it's not simply that we have a zero pleasure, me and my panther jump onto each other and do it, and then we complicated it through poetry, seduction, presence, or whatsoever. In a way, if we want to target pure pleasure, 
without these surpluses, we lose the pleasure itself. Paradoxically, you need an excess to construct what this excess is an excess, uh, in, is an excess to. And so uh, this is why uh, I am so interested in those phenomena where you can get the difference between standard pleasure and this uh, gain in pleasure at its purest. Let me tell you an example. I don't know if in this part of the United States it's also happening, but a friend of mine, a Slovene who lives in, uh, in uh, Ithaca, Cornell, told me what happened to him. Uh, he visited one evening a Walmart store when the store was, mega store was almost closing. And he saw near the exit many shopping carts full of items thrown into them, items that are usually found among in the shelves. So again, close to the exit, uh, you had uh, 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 shopping carts abandoned just close to the exit. Then he asked one guy there from Walmart, what does this mean? And he got a wonderful explanation. These carts were mostly abandoned by members of the newly impoverished middle classes, middle class families, who were no longer able to buy things. So they, usually the whole family, they visit the store, go through the ritual of shopping, just throwing things in, and then they just abandon the full cart and leave the store. In this set way, they obtain the surplus enjoyment of shopping in its pure isolated form, without buying anything. But you know, and I claim this is not an exception. I know it holds, okay, I will not now be anti-feminist, not only for my wife, but for me also. Often the, the pleasure of shopping is the pleasure of the act of shopping itself. It's not really, what, which is why many of my friends don't want to do digital shopping and so on, like where is the experience? So we do something, including shopping itself, with a clear purpose, you want to buy something. But we are really indifferent towards this purpose since the true satisfaction is brought about by the activity itself. Uh, and uh, I claim, now we will finally, that, sorry, wait a minute, that uh, uh, the same holds for bureaucracy. That's what I love about bureaucracy. Bureaucracy is meant to solve problems. But we all know that the true purpose of bureaucracy is to reproduce problems, even to recreate problems. So you have absolutely, and I love it, this pleasure of bureaucracy, how you are almost at the point of simply solving the problem, but no, you have to invent a new complication so that the process goes on. And the best example that I know of this is, did you see a wonderful movie? I think one of the greatest movies of all times. Terry Gillian's Brazil. Where, okay, let's see Brazil now. It's a short one minute and a half scene. A guy, the hero, played by Jonathan Price is looking for a certain high bureaucrat.
You see the point, this group wandering around imitates ultra-efficiency, solve this problem, do that, but it's clearly a no, at the same time a no, nonsensical game which is an aim in itself. And I claim that's how bureaucracy works, basically. The, the true point, again, is just to imitate this process of efficiency. And uh, my greatest personal triumph, one of the few things of which I'm really proud is, it happened to me years ago, it was in France. French are the worst bureaucrats, much worse than you. Uh, uh, I had to apply to some permission to stay. And they told me, they tried the lady there in the office to fascinate me uh, by saying, oh, but you didn't take into account the provision B25 where you have to fill that form. And I risk a bluff. I say, yes, but what about the provision C14? I totally bluffed, but for a brief moment she was in a total panic. You know, like I almost won. I mean, you, ha you have to fight back. You have to... And I, again, I love this moment where, again, here you have the pure surplus pleasure. You know, it's not about solving problems, it's about imitating the game of solving problems. Now, so that things will not be too, too joyful, I will give you the terrifying example. Um, you know, when after Germany was defeated at Stalingrad, Joseph Goebbels, the propaganda minister, did something quite ingenious. He organized a big, mega public meeting in Berlin, in Sportpalast, a big public venue, where he gave what is probably the ultimate, for me at least, political speech, the so-called Totaler Krieg, total war speech. Uh, okay, unfortunately, the only copy I was able to get with, with uh, English subtitles, it has some humanist uh, introduction. Well, forgot about it. It's worth listening to it all. In second part, it will be around three minutes. Because what is so shocking, listen carefully to what Goebbels is saying. You know, some Nazis said, let's downplay the, the Stalingrad defeat and so on. No, Goebbels said, let's go to the end, let's admit it, let's exaggerate it. And it's an incredible it's a performance of this uh, surplus pleasure, not only deprived of all pleasure, but surplus pleasure in the very form of promising extreme suffering. You don't get any pleasure. You, uh, you will see how, uh, be careful what he's saying. He's not saying uh, there will be harsh time, but don't worry, it will not be too bad, we will win. He promises just more misfortune. He says almost in the Kantian way of sublime, do you want a war? so total that you cannot even imagine how total will it be. Do you want to work 10, 12, 16 hours per day? Do you want to suffer deprivations that you cannot even imagine today? And the crowd shout, yes, yes, yes. This is surplus 
pleasure at its purest. Let's do this, yeah, please. Yeah. But now I want the sound. We are with Nazis. I mean, it doesn't work without sound. Any problems with sound or what? Because this one doesn't have sound. Yeah. I'm sorry. We got a proper Nazi effect. It wasn't planned. So there's a delay on the But it was okay. What? The track, it'll do it again. Uh -huh. <laughs> But it's okay, this doesn't matter, just when we will see him. Es muss ganz zur Ausschöpfung gelangen, und zwar so schnell und so gründlich, als das organisatorisch und sachlich überhaupt nur technisch weiß. Je mehr wir dem Führeramt Kraft in die Hand geben, umso vernichtender wird dieser Schlag sein. Go forward, go to the middle of it, if you can jump forward. Okay, let's start, 
Does this sound familiar to you? Now no longer parties, people are directly in power. No, <laughs> no but what I want to say is that uh, I'm sorry we don't have more details. Crucially, it's wonderful to analyze it towards the end, the expression of Goebbels' face, which is not just this active fury, but a strange contortion of faith which really betrays some kind of a very weird perverted pleasure and so on. And I think uh, this is not just an, uh, an exception. This is uh, the basic mechanism of why, you know, there is a big mystery. Everyone knew that from at least the spring of 43 that the war is over. Why did they go on for two years. I don't think they had many illusions. Nobody really believed their miraculous weapons and so on and so on. It's again at the libidinal level this excessive, excessive pleasure at its purest. And that's, I think, how actual politics works. And you will say, now I'm giving you an extreme example. No. Even today I was shocked how my good friends in Greece, some Syriza people, they, in a totally different way, I'm not even implying that they were in a, any way close to Nazis or whatever, but how they got caught into the same trap of suffering is good, to be authentic you have to suffer. I remember when Grexit was an option a year ago. Uh, I told them, but are you aware what this means? That uh, European establishment, they wanted Grexit, basically. Varoufakis, my friend, told me, when he visited Schäuble, German finance minister, who was the central bad guy, he thought that he had a winning car to blackmail him. If you don't give us better conditions for repaying the debt, we will do Grexit. And he told me, Varoufakis, he almost got a heart attack. You know what was Schäuble's answer? It was, fine, do it. Do you need help? We give you 20, 30 billions more just to do the Brexit and so on. Because they, now Varoufakis knows the whole story. The plan was to push Greece into Brexit and to make it sure, because, you know, Greece basically is... Uh, poor country which imports, I don't know how many percent of food, medicaments, everything, and to cause an incredible economic chaos, suffering, and then to do not a direct one, but the plan was a kind of a benevolent coup d'etat, like just to guarantee normality, food provisions, and so on. But what shocked me so much is how uh, all these leftist friends of mine, when I dis I mean, it was almost not the same politics, but the same economy as Goebbels. I noticed that the more I describe them the suffering that this will cause, the more they say, yes, but we are ready to go through hell, we will eat grass and so on. You know, they were as if you, they were fascinated by this prospect of suffering. Suffering as demonstrating greatness. I think this is, this is, this is a pretty dangerous temptation. It will, all my respect for Che Guevara. The most tragic passage in all Che Guevara that I read is Che Guevara visited Yugoslavia, which was a slightly softer self-management communism, in 61, I think. 
And there is an incredible passage in that report. He said, I took a walk around Belgrade, and I noticed that people are well-dressed, glad, you have enough food in the stores, they enjoy life. But he didn't mean this in a positive way. This deeply bothered him, like, where is the suffering which brings revolutionary enthusiasm and so on? Like, couldn't, he, he was deeply disturbed by this. Now, I, 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 I have a problem with this, not out of any moralistic reason, but I, I still remain a communist, if you want, but I don't trust left which is in love with extraordinary times. I hope you agree with me if I say that, uh, and I repeated this, it should be these days out, yesterday I did an interview for Tavis Smiley there. He's a nice guy. Very, appears authoritarian, but in five minutes we were in dirty, uh, dirty jokes. <laughs> He's a good guy. But I talked about this, about how, you know what I don't like in the standard left? They like so much these big events, you know. One million people on Tahrir Square, on Syntagma Square, even Occupy Wall Street. And then they are already in love with themselves, you know. Like, it was so nice, we were there. I more and more think that the true test is, as you call it, the morning after. What Forget about these big events, one million people, we all cry together, enthusiasm. <laughs> How will ordinary people feel the change when things return to normal? Like, because you can live in these ecstatic, extraordinary times for, I don't know, a couple of months at the most. Then things return to normal. And if I may use, I'm sorry if you know it, another... Uh, 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 another... Uh, Another uh, example, you saw probably the movie uh, um, V for Vendetta. I have big problem with that movie. Because it's precisely about that. You remember at the end, the crowd breaks through. Uh, police protection enters the parliament. The people take over. As I like to say, I'm ready to sell my mother into slavery. She is dead, so I can safely say it. To see a movie called, and this will be the subtitle of the first chapter of my next book, V for Vendetta, part two. But what will they do then next day? What measures will they nationalize? How will they organize it? And this, if you ask me, is a mega problem of the left today. I spent hours on Occupy Wall Street in Frankfurt, and I asked them, okay, what do you want? For their first reaction was, even to raise this question is a treason, you know. Like, we are here authentically in need, but nonetheless. And then, you know, you can see all the confusion. Some of them were basically just good Keynesians, a little bit more of this, or of that, and so on. Others dreamt of some immediate self-organization of the crowds. You know, after we see that, unfortunately, because of the recent tendencies in global capitalism, we cannot simply return to the old welfare state. After we see that, of course, really existing so uh, communism, socialism failed. The last dream is this pre-representative local communities governing themselves and so on. But uh, I think, now this will be maybe to conclude because I haven't even entered one third of the talk. <laughs> but uh, 
at least allow me to, to conclude with this. Uh, uh, you know, uh, when people asked me, what is your political ideal? I told them without joking, bureaucratic socialism. Why? Because, uh, you know, when people claim Stalinism was bureaucratic, no, I claim if we grasp bureaucracy in the Max Weber sense of efficient state machinery, Stalinism was precisely not able to do this. It needed a permanent emergency state. In other words, I will tell you something very brutal. I wouldn't like to live in a society where of this immanent, non, not alienated representation, but uh, constant self-organization. This is hell for me. What every afternoon we will have to meet, how to distribute water, electricity, how to organize childcare. No, I want to live in a nicely alienated society where anonymous state mechanisms take care of this somehow. Okay, you criticize them. Of course, I want independent uh, civil society. But basically, it is done for you. I want to have time to do my stupid work, watch movies, write books, and so on. So I'm claiming that even theoretically, this doesn't work. Did you notice how countries which tried to move in this direction, like Venezuela, it's absolutely crucial that you had this pseudo-local self-organization movement backed with a very strong state with a charismatic leader. It's totally illusory to think that in Venezuela you could have just self-organization without Chavez. No, the two are absolutely needed. Now you will say, but we can prove that all this doesn't work. Why even to demand this? Uh, uh, any way to move beyond capitalism and so on. Uh, here I am, that's why I'm a communist, because I think that it's clear that we are approaching some social antagonisms where I'm simply a pessimist. I don't think that within the Fukuyama vision of world history, we can even properly confront these problems. The predominant left today, inclusive of Paul Krugman and all those, I began to suspect them. Did you notice how Paul Krugman brutally attacked Bernie Sanders? Immediately there, he disclosed himself as pure Hillary, not you, but the other Hillary Clinton. Uh, so what I wanted to say is that, uh, is that uh, 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 what I wanted to say is that the majority of the left, even today, are what I ironically call left Fukuyamaists. You know, we accept liberal democratic global capitalism. We just try to make it a little bit better, more hurtful, more this, more that. Well, I would have said. If it can work, nothing against it. But will it work? Again, my claim is that we are confronting a series of problems from ecology. Sorry, I totally support that we use market as much as we can, proper taxation and so on and so on. But the true ecological threats, you cannot solve them through market. We will need mega organizations, mega even transnational organizations to find it. Intellectual property, banking, and so on. It's clear that capitalism is losing there. And this is why what is happening today more and more is from what I defined in one earlier books, from, from profit back to rent. We have a crisis of private property 
the solution that is emerging now is that you have these companies which no longer work as old capitalist companies, but companies which, in a way, privatize the commons themselves and in this way get profit. Even in agriculture, Monsanto. I'm open there. I don't know how really bad uh, uh, biogenetic uh, engineering is. But the true horror of Monsanto for me is this one. Once you buy their seeds, you have to go on buying it. That is to say this basic autonomy of the process, agricultural process, you know, reproducing, it's no longer possible. In a way, the commons, seeds and so on, are privatized. And it's the same with Microsoft privatizing the language we use on the web and so on and so on, Amazon. So it's clear, everybody knows this, my God, that here capitalism is approaching a limit. Another limit that I see is... The pro and although it may appear that I exaggerate, it's a very serious limit. It's the prospect of uh, what people in big media call, uh, call, uh, uh, call this um, uh, uh, post-human, the arrival of post-humanity. Of course, we should drop all that crazy Ray Kurzweil visions of singularity and so on and so on. You know where he cheats? I read his books of Ray Kurzweil. He, he thinks as if we can all become one great mind post-human, but some, at some level, the way he describes it, we will still remain human, communicating. He doesn't see that uh, the change will be, uh, will be a much more radical one. And what will happen? We have two visions, basically. One vision is this happy... Uh, post-human vision, singularity. We will all merge into one big collective intelligence and so on. Uh, the other vision is a more pessimist one. Simply, we will become irrelevant. We will just be directed, regulated by machines and so on and so on. I think there is a third option, a much more pessimist one, which is uh, the combination of the two. We, the majority of us, will be just uh, cocks, bolts in the machine, but some people, the elite, will be much closer to controlling the machine, you know. I always think about Stalin here. There is another, and with this I will conclude, wonderful joke from Stalinist Soviet Union in the mid-30s, the Politburo debates, will there be money in communism or not? So first you have right-wing revisionists who claim, of course, money is natural. How can you exchange it with money? There will, not be, mo there will be money. Then the left-wingers claim no money is capitalist alienation. There will not be money. And Stalin intervenes and says, oh, comrades, you are both wrong. Right-wing and leftist deviation, the solution is the dialectical synthesis of both. There will be money and there will not be money. And then they ask him, but Comrade Stalin, how do you mean this? And Stalin answers, it's very simple. Some people will have money, others will <laughs> not have money. And it's the same with the prospect of artificial intelligence, you know. Some people will control us, the others will just be, uh, will just be controlled. And can you, I mean, I really think that the very basis of liberal democracy are threatened by this development. 
and it's extremely important what is at this level happening today. I read some medical reports where they claim that, and they are not utopians, they, they, the futurologists, they don't claim machines are perfect computers, but they claim on average they're better. For example, if you go, if you are uh, examined just by a machine and machine does the diagnosis, they say, of course machines can make mistakes if a computer diagnosed you. But they make much less mistakes than human doctors. Then they did a wonderful experiment. I love it. They controlled some voters. Machine just registered your dissatisfaction through the four years between the two elections. And then uh, they compared how machine would vote for you but machine in the sense of the machine without an opinion of its own. The machine would just register when you were furious, you're unhappy, and how you vote. And they discovered that the vote proposed by the computer would have been much more rational. Because usually you get caught in some spin before elections and measured by your own reactions, long-term interests, and so on, you know. So, we are approaching here really a new era. On the other hand, you know what, but you know what really makes me not afraid. I just don't know where it will lead us. Uh, 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 two things are happening now. First, not only this obvious possibility of biogenetic manipulations, which also affect your psychic features, character, but what especially interests me is this direct interface contact between a machine computer and your brain. You know that, for example, uh, 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 Stephen Hawking no longer needs his finger. Now his brains, his wheelchair computer is linked to his brains and he just thinks forward and the chair moves forward. And this opens totally new, uh, totally new perspectives. Like the most fascinating story I learned from my friends who work in this domain is they made an experiment. They, they have shown me the video with rats. They can connect rats, neurons with this just basic in computer instructions, move forward, left, right. And it's pretty terrifying. Red becomes a remote-controlled car. Red is running around in a big uh, box. Then you press the button, and you can literally direct the red. Now, why is this so interesting? Ah, because they told me they didn't want to go public with it. But they're already making experiments on people, and they focus on the right problem, which is how will you experience that moment when your neurons, which control your movements, are are computer regulated. And they told me the first results are very dark pessimist. Why? Because you are not even aware of it. The result is not all of a sudden you feel some foreign power took over. No. You think you are still freely running around. So I'm not a pessimist here. Who knows what will happen? I'm just saying that this is a tremendous challenge to it, how we deal this. We have ecology. We have new walls. Uh, we are approaching new class society. If you don't believe me, look at Hollywood. They know it. Hunger Games, uh, Elysium, and so on. I am not 
simply against capitalism. My God, listen, I'm a Marxist, and everyone who read Capital knows that Marx was absolutely fascinated by capitalism. No, the most productive. I'm just saying that we live in a really dangerous era where it's obvious that we are approaching a certain limit and people know it. We have many protests all around the world, even in developed countries. Occupy Wall Street, now here in Europe. But no clear offer, no program what to do, how to get out. And these are truly dangerous times. Like the most tragic thing that I learned from European politics is that, and you have elements of this even in Trump, is that, you know, <coughs> which European government did recently the most radical pro-working class uh, enacted pro-working class measures. The extremely nationalist, conservative uh, Polish government. They did incredible things. They lowered the era of retirement. They enabled students. The whole set of measures that no social democrat today dares to Advocate. So we live in crazy times. Isn't this the European madness at its purest? If you want to have the most brutal austerity measures actualized, get an extremely left government like Syriza in Greece. And if you want to do some relatively radical, for today at least, pro-worker measures, get an extremely right-wing government. Like in France, Marine Le Pen is the only one who openly advocates workers' interests, of course, in this half-fascist way, and so on, and so on. So I think that where I am no longer a Marxist, I think we should abandon that metaphor of, you know, Marxist, we know where the future is going, uh, all this unfortunate metaphor of train of history, riding it. We have to, uh, the metaphor that I prefer much more is one used by I'm still in love with French Revolution, Saint-Just and Robespierre, both of them, said we revolutionaries are not fulfilling some big historical necessity. He says we are like captains on a ship. Our ships are entering uncharted, unknown territories. And we have to improvise to see what to do. And that's, that's the situation where we are today, again, the situation is open. We don't know. Open in the sense that it's clear that we are approaching some kind of global crisis, ecologically, refugees, uh, uh, biogenetics, financial capital, intellectual property. Like, isn't it absolutely clear with all those problems of pirate and so on that, to put it in the most old-fashioned, brutal Marxist way, uh, private property doesn't work with intellectual, so-called intellectual property. It, you cannot really privatize it. It doesn't work. But what is the solution? And this is the danger. I'm, I'm really, really afraid. So to return, really to conclude to my topic, uh, because I want okay, now I will do something very hypocritical. We start to debate, and I ask myself the first question. Professor Zizek, what did you want to say in the remaining part of your talk? And I will be very brief. I wanted to do, to also go into other domains where this surplus functions, especially of power and knowledge. 
You know that in power also we have surplus power. That's for me the weakness of this contractual liberalism. Even with the most democratic power, where they say, oh, we are just your servant, uh, state apparatuses are just agencies you hire, as it were, buy rent to do some job. No, for power to effectively function, every power, not just fascist, for power structures to retain their authority, no matter how much they are bound by laws and regulations, there has to be this superego message between the lines, but basically we can do whatever we want. You know, it has to be that threat of omnipotence, which of course has to remain potential, but it has to be there. And then I wanted to do the same line of thought with science, how modern science works directly in the capitalist way, not in the bad sense of surplus knowledge. You know, traditional knowledge is this artisanal knowledge. A farmer knows how to work the field, artisan how to do the swords metal. And then you have the higher mythic knowledge, religious ideology. But what happened with scientific knowledge is the first type of knowledge which constantly perceives itself as self-revolutionizing, like science is never finished, we always have to discover more and more. And then I wanted to conclude with all that topic. But to finish, I think to return to it that the great danger for progressives, for the left, I claim, is precisely to escape this plot the danger of, let's call it, a surplus pleasure. For example, it's so suspicious for me, this self-torturing uh, 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 anti-Eurocentrism very much in fashion in Europe. You know, every radical leftist in Europe feels good when whatever bad thing happens in the third world, you can somehow blame Europe. You know, and it's incredible how whenever something happens there, like uh, uh, I had a debate with, uh, uh, about uh, honor killing in Pal Palestine with some West European leftists who claim, no, honor killing as the result of Israeli imperial manipulation of the way. Like, uh, and I spoke then, I have many Palestinian friends who were furious at it, who, one of them told me a wonderful, tragic thing. He told me, listen, this is for me the utmost racism. They patronize us so much, they, they don't even tolerate us being evil, you know. Like, we have to be those innocent, manipulated people where, uh, and so on. That's why my ultimate encounter was with some native, so-called, they hated the name. In Missoula, Montana, I made some Indians, Native Americans. I love them. They saw, they hated so much this patronizing white attitude. We are imperialist, exploiting nature. You are doing it differently. Before you enter a mountain to dig a hole to mine it, you ask the mountain for permission. You talk with the spirit of the mountain and so on. One of my friends there, maybe you know the joke, I'm sorry to repeat it to you if you know it. 
First, he told me, I much prefer to be called Indian than Native American, because I don't like it Native American. First, I'm hyphen American then. I will accept it when you, the British English majority, will be called English American, you know. Like, I, this is already second class, the hyphenated Americans. Second thing he told me is that Native American, well, what echoes in the background is nature versus culture. We are Native Americans at what? You are cultured Americans and so on. So they told me I love to be called Indian because at least my name is then a monument to white men's stupidity who thought they are in <laughs> India. And they, one of them wrote a wonderful analysis proving that Indians, so-called, killed more buffaloes and burned more forests than all the white people together. Of course, it was not quite true, but you see, the tendency was, don't patronize us. Don't put us in that, you know, because what they saw very clearly is the surplus enjoyment we white people get in this. You know, like, once we had white men's burden in the sense of uh, we are destined to rule. Now we have another type of white man's burden. For every evil that comes, we have to be guilty. Now we will say, I agree, this is mostly true. But you know, hidden beneath this self-torture is the fact that it's still racist. It privileges you as the only guy with the universal position. They, marginals, just see their particular identity. We admire them. We, this is why I think it's deeply racist when this fact that, did you notice this simple fact that the more you go to a marginal group, the more they are allowed to assert their particular identity. If Native Americans perform their ritual dance, it's perfect. And so on and so on. With Italians, it gets suspicious then. If a white wasp says, we also have our tradition, you are a fascist. You know why I oppose this? Not, I'm not a right-winger who says, you know, the main right-wing argumentation today is precisely, we just want for us what politically correct. No, I think the racism is this precisely insofar as we are not allowed to assert our particular identity, we secretly reserve for ourselves the universal position. That's why we can fight for others' rights. That, you know, it's an incredible, arrogant racism uh, behind it. So again, the big obstacle for me with political correctness and so on, and again, the paradox is that, of course, I agree with all goals and of uh, political correctness and so on, but uh, my suspicion is in this, let's call it precisely, self, the more they criticize themselves, the more you detect a perverted a, perv uh, a, a perverted surplus pleasure in it. Uh, 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 and that's why another thing that makes me suspicious is, of course, I'm well aware of the need to criticize Eurocentrism and so on. But what makes me suspicious is that precisely today, with the new stage of world capitalism, global capitalism, it's clearly that capitalism less and less needs authentic democracy. We are approaching a much more authoritarian form of capitalism. Uh, it's a paradoxical capitalism. It's not simply the old 
fascism. It's a soft fascism. Like, you get all your personal rights, you can have sex with animals, whatever you want, you get the freedom of choice, but social processes become totally non-transparent, regulated, not even by political agents, by experts, and so on, and so on. And uh, in such a situation, what I fear is that this anti-democratic resentment is often masked as a critique of Eurocentrism. Precisely today when what nonetheless was good about European legacy is threatened. This is why my true heroes are people like Haiti Revolution to Saint Louverture, like Malcolm X and so on, who saw this danger very... Malcolm X is for me... I wrote about it, I'm sorry if you know, a genius, a Hegelian genius. You know what he saw clearly? X. X was, we were deprived of our roots and so on. But his solution is not the Hollywood one, Alex Haley, roots. Let's look for our roots. No. The genius of Malcolm X was that he saw this X as a new opening. Precisely because we are in a tragic situation of deprived of our roots, we blacks have a unique chance of being more authentically universalist than the white people. To send Louverture, Haiti revolution so clearly the same and so on and so on. So again, uh, I claim that the way things are moving now, Europe is precisely the greatest danger to what is worth fighting for in Europe. In, European tradition is threatened not by Muslim immigrants, but by Europeans themselves. I mean, Europe, which will be run by, by I don't know, Le Pen in France, uh, UKIP in Britain, this precisely will no longer be Europe, Enlightenment Europe. But, and so I claim that maybe we will see this wonderful paradox where blacks and others will be the only one where European legacy will be alive. That would be a wonderful moment to see. This is, when I was in India, it was wonderful for me to see this, the uh, untouchable, the lowest. They love English language. You know why? Because they told me our languages are so impregnated by caste systems and so on, that for us, English language is the great equalizer. It, uh, so again, the, we have to be absolutely open here. We are entering an uncharted territory, but we know that we will have to do something, otherwise I think we are really lost. If we will be lucky, then we will live in a society like Hunger Games and so on, if not something much worse. So you need, we really live in dangerous times, I claim. Sorry, I was too long, but what the hell, you had to suffer it. You were helpless. <laughs> Thanks very much. Sorry, 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 sorry. You know, I spoke too long, but my usual excuse is I spoke too long if you measure it with this metaphysical homogeneous linear time. <laughs> so I subverted that notion of time. I'm sorry that I didn't... Uh, go to the last part, which was much more theoretical, but uh, I really think that we live, the good thing about our times is nonetheless, here I'm a Maoist. You know my favorite Mao saying? 
heaven is under disorder, the situation is excellent. You should never forget that chaotic times like others are also times when something new can emerge. And maybe it will. Look, who would have predicted even Bernie Sanders 10 years ago? They would have said, no, it's absolutely impossible because this was the pure uh, surplus pleasure of American academic left. You know, we are leftists, but like I spoke once, I was even a member 20 years ago with October Journal. And I asked them the stupid question, where does the title come from? And they told me, you know, October, October Revolution, you know, like the big secret, but it meant absolutely nothing. <laughs> you know what I mean? This, the academic left should think what they did. Instead of just making fun of Trump, they should ask themselves how did they and the liberal left contribute to Trump. The metaphor I like to use is that of medicine. If we just fight Trump, and we should, we are doing what in medicine is called, if I know it correctly, symptomal healing. You know, you have a pain, you take a pill just to ease the pain. But we should never forget that Trump was a reaction to the impotence and wrong politics of the liberal left. So the change has to happen there. I mean, I am absolutely, I was misunderstood when I made those provocations, you know, for Trump. Trump is a nightmare, but at least you know it's a nightmare. What I fear if Hillary were to win is that people would say, oh, thanks God, now we are back in normal times. No, we are not. I mean, Trump was a wrong reaction to a real problem. Let's, okay, uh, you have to stop me. <laughs> Now comes my surplus pleasure. I spoke so long, and then I will be able to say, I'm sorry, we don't have a lot of time to the debate. I would love to stay all the night with you, but unfortunately... You see, the, ni the, the nice thing about Slavoj is he's given you the answer. Now what we want to do is get the question to which that was the answer. You are a Hegelian. Yeah. My yeah. ideal debate, I once proposed it, but they didn't want me to do it, was a debate like this. I talk for three minutes, and then you should guess the question which I was answering, you know. That would be a Hegelian reversal. All right. Uh, there is time for questions. I think perhaps we, we should go for perhaps another half hour. Um, 20 we have, minutes. We have got tw 20 minutes. <laughs> we, we have got uh, two microphones uh, running around the place. Have the uh, microphones been picked up? Okay. Uh, would you just raise your hand and I'll uh, uh, send a microphone in your direction. We have one question here and then one over there. Sorry. Thank you. Okay. Please. Uh, thank you so much for coming and speaking. Um, but when you begin like this, I see you're sharpening the knife behind you. <laughs> <laughs> Go um, grab your knife directly. Yeah. Yeah. So... Uh, so earlier you were talking about uh, about the value of dogma, of of dogma. In yeah, 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 yeah. Um, what role do you think religion plays in that? Oh, that's a nice question. The only problem is that, of course, to give you a proper answer would have meant not half an hour, but more. My hope, I define myself just to give you a hint. If you want my position. It's cheap to make propaganda, but I have a long chapter in my last 
theoretical book, Disparities, with the title of, it may be even unnecessarily provocative, with the title of, Is God Unconscious, Stupid, Evil, or Just Virtual, or whatever, I don't know, where I literally describe what I call my atheist, uh, my, uh, my Christian atheism. Uh, I... I'm proud to call him my friend. He's a wonderful guy. The ex-Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams. You know, the one who I think married even Lady D or whatever. He's a wonderful guy. He's really a good theorist also. And he, in his book on Dostoevsky, which I advise you to read it. It's a, sorry, I'm getting lost in these detours, but he gives the best reading of Dostoevsky's idiot that I know. His reading is that far from being an innocent, pure guy, that idiot is this, the most terrifying person. There are persons who are in themselves innocent, sincere, but somehow the way they act in their immediate environment, they cause just trouble all around. And he thinks idiots, you know, he brings to Nastasia Filipovna, to all others, he's a pure guy which, who brings, but okay, Rowan Williams said that the most elementary form of religious experience, and this is my negative theology, my negative theology is not, oh, God is beyond, we don't know what, it's literally, God is for me just a negative opening, it's this basic film, Feeling, not feeling is not a good word. It's much more radical existentially. It's this basic experience that this world is out of joint. We don't fully belong here. But my idea is precisely to keep it at this level. There, uh, I claim that the way you fill in this void comes second. And I claim... I did write three, four books on Christianity, that this is the implicit lesson of Christianity for me. Christianity is something, for me at least, incredibly subversive. The message of Christianity is God dies, and we are, God's gift to us is our freedom. You know, Christianity, it's totally wrong to read Christianity in the sense of, uh, God sent a messenger, he failed, there will be second coming. No, it's no second coming. I read it literally, you know, in the Bible, when uh, some pupils asked Christ, but how will we know that you will return? And Christ said literally, when there will be love between two of you, I will be there. That is to say, you know, uh, uh, like, let's say God is dead which means we are abandoned, we are alone, which means we are left to ourselves. But what we have to do is not to say, oh, if we do well, pray, fast ourselves, we will rejoin God. No, we just have to shift the perspective. God left us alone, which means God gave us freedom, the greatest gift, and so on. The message of Christianity is, for me, what comes after the death of Christ is not God, as Hegel put it very precisely, what dies on the cross, it's not just a messenger of God. It's in a way God himself. What comes after is the Holy Ghost, which is, okay, I will be consciously provocative. Communist Party, Psychonistic Association, whatever. It's an emancipatory community, which is why the most beautiful line in gospel for me, you know when Christ is with his disciples and somebody comes in and says, oh, your family is out there. And he says, 
not in these terms, but in my version. Fuck you, my family is here with you. And that's how I read Christ saying, if you don't hate your mother, father, you're not my pupil. No, it's not meant, of course, in this stupid way. You have to hate them. But I think that father, mother stand for all traditional hierarchic structures. The greatness of the idea of Holy Spirit is that we can have an egalitarian emancipatory community, not just as in Buddhism, more or less, in death, in the beyond. Here in our social life, we can have it. So in this sense, okay, I will not lose time now, you should stop me here, but in this sense, I literally understand myself as uh, an atheist Christian, and I think that I'm absolutely opposed to this ecumenic bullshit, you know, like Christianity, uh, we are all praying to the same God who just appears in different guises and so on, whatever, whatever. No, immense things happen within Religion And there is such a radical break with Christianity. And now you will say, but look at all the horrors that happened in Christianity. Here I like to quote, uh, you know, that anecdote when Napoleon was crowned by Pope Emperor. When Pope approached him, Napoleon took the crown from Pope's hand and put it on. And you know what the Pope answered to Napoleon? It's a wonderful answer. He said, I know, Your Excellence, what you wanted to do. You wanted to destroy Christianity. But believe me, you will not succeed. We, the Church, are trying to do this for almost 2,000 years. (laughs) You know, I think that we have this nice paradox of how Church as an organization is not really fighting paganism. It's fighting its own excess in the good sense. It's fighting the radical core of, of Christianity itself. Okay, I cannot go on, just things are... We know which movie I... Uh, uh, no, sorry. Did you Sl- see a movie? Slavoj, you, yeah. you asked me to be brutal. And He's an Austrian. Cut. Austrians yeah, were it. worse Nazis than Germans. Yet, no. Say he, hello to Adolf, your yeah. grandfather. <laughs> yes, this is fertig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Okay. So there was another question over here. Um, so you talked about uh, bureaucracy and how bureaucracy doesn't really want to be efficient. It just wants to yeah. perpetuate itself. Um, and then is, is that inherently a bad thing? And if so, how do we get away from that, especially if you want sort of a bureaucratic socialist state? I'm ready to take... I know. This is, I, I, I wonder how other people didn't notice it before, this apparent contradiction. First, I claim bureaucracy is perverted, reproducing itself. Then I praise bureaucratic socialism or whatever, you know. But I think that uh, my crazy wager is that if you allow bureaucracy to be, you, the basic goal of bureaucracy is to reproduce itself. Not to solve problems. There is another wonderful detail in the movie that I referred to Brazil. You remember all the troubles of the hero begin when something breaks in his machinery. I don't know what heating in his apartment. So he calls the official state, how you call them, repairman. And of course they just complicate things, write a report and so on. Then the same night Robert De Niro comes as a kind of illegal repairman, who, what does he do? And it's the greatest act of transgression. 
She just corrects things, you know, immediately. And next day, bureaucrats come, the official, and say, what, you just did repair yourself? Who come? It's a pro and this is how he is arrested. I think that I'm much of a pessimist here. I think if we accept the irrationality of bureaucracy, I believe that if we organize it well, bureaucracy can do some really good thing as an excess. You know? <laughs> it's the other way around. Bureaucracy serves itself, but as an excess, it can do things. And I think this is our reality. It's so easy to criticize bureaucracy. But are you aware how healthcare system, school, and so on? My God, I, I, are we aware what a terrifying thing a life would have been without bureaucracy? You have to externalize all this machinic aspect. And it can be done. My answer is tolerance, but at the same time, a little bit of terror. Not against the people, but against the bureaucracy. I think the price should be, I'm not exactly for North Korea, but one thing I like in North Korea and in Stalinism, I'm not crazy, you will maybe even agree with me. You know, people forget that under Stalinism, There, it, you know, like the great Stalinist terror from 30, 40, uh, 37. 80% of the army generals were shot. 70% of the central committee members were shot. So I think that with a little bit of terror, bureaucracy, like my idea would be, be a bureaucrat, fine, you are better paid, but there is always a risk of terror against you, you know, like, not terror against, against the people, but terror against bureaucracy. I know it's a crazy idea, but I just think that, oh my God, I was part of them, all these communes, self-organized, and so on and so on. It works at a certain level, but then the moment it gets developed, it turns bad. You, I, I, I put it like this, and even... To my great pleasure, Negri and Hart considered this. No, Tony Negri now did some interview where he said, we have to rehabilitate, taking power, leadership, vertical power, and so on, and so on. He admits that, this, uh, that the idea that the logic of multitudes will, will grasp the entire social field, as it were, that it doesn't work. Okay, I didn't again answer you, yeah. but what the hell. I, I like the fact that uh, Pomona has just appointed a new president, and I think we should pass on that piece of information in Which, your last question. Pomona just appointed a new president, and I think a new chief administrator. So I think this is a good, uh, a good thing to pass on. Uh, I didn't get it. Did you? Is this a good fact? Is he a good guy, bad guy? Why did you mention it, this? It, I'm intrigued. <laughs> the, uh, an amazing woman. Is there, uh, so in what sense? Sexual, intellectual? I mean, <laughs> in my primitive Balkan country, if you say an amazing woman... <laughs> no, let's drop this, I'm sorry. <laughs> you see, that serves me right. right? Uh, all right, we have a question up here. Hi, thank you. I, I'm interested in what you said about... Um, the ecological crisis in the world yeah. and how that's going to require organization yeah. outside of the market. Um, but I also 
Uh, if I remember correctly, in an examined life, you also had some criticisms about environmentalism as a dogma, and, and I saw a little bit of what you said about um, excess pleasure in that yeah. that argument. Could you talk a little bit about how to how to address the ecological crisis that you mentioned, but avoid the dangers? Okay, of, no, no, yeah. it's a wonderful question. But again, the only problem is uh, like let's do another talk for okay. one hour and a half. No, you know what I'm saying there. Uh, uh, ecology is unfortunately the, one of the great ideological battlefields. The main danger that I see is precisely this superego dimension. How does the ruling ideology deal with ecological topic? First, it in- individualizes it. The strategy is to put you, treat you as guilty, but at the same time to offer you an easy way out. The idea is first, don't just criticize, do something. And then they say, recycle, do this, buy green apples, and so on and so on. And that's the catch. At the same time, they offer you this easy way out, so that, just so that, you know, so that it makes you feel good, you know. Like, what can I do? I recycle, I buy green apples, I go to, to Starbucks, which I really hate, and then, you know, the cappuccino there is a little bit more expensive, but I know that one cent goes to some stupid Guatemala children, <laughs> the other to some stupid... Uh, it, it's a feel-good ecologism. So I think we should... And this is really, I think, in a way... A magical, magical thinking to avoid real problems. It's the same with uh, how we treat immigrants. I don't like in Europe this humanitarian perception of it. Of course we should help them, but basically this is not a humanitarian problem. This is a problem of geopolitics, of forms of new global capitalism, and so on and so on. And I hate this idea of just, oh, there are half a million of people in Turkey waiting, we we show our open hearts, and so on. Well, sorry to tell you, but the solution is not that Europe just opens itself and lets them in. What will happen there? There is no serious will in even minimally addressing, for example, refugees in Libya from Africa. The first question to ask is what created this wake of refugees? New extremely brutal form of neocolonialism, for example, new models of farming. The true tragedy of Africa is that not so much Europe, not even United States, these are more some Arab countries and South Korea, Japan, and others, they are buying incredible quantities of the best fertile land, growing there industrial plants for exports and so on, and then, of course, you create dispossessed people and so on. So what I'm saying is that, on the one hand, I don't believe in this individual culpabilization. I don't believe, and I also don't believe in this communal thing, you know, local thinking. I think that the way... New, for example, sorry, to give you an example, my good friend, you really should read him, the futurologist theorist of catastrophes, who teaches a little bit up from here at, at, uh, at, I think, at Stanford, Jean-Pierre Dupuy. He is also member of some uh, uh, ecological committees in Europe. He told me he was at uh, 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 Fukushima, two days after, as part of, and he told me something pretty terrifying, that for a couple of hours, maybe one day, 
Japanese authorities thought that the radiation will be so strong that they will have to evacuate the entire Tokyo area, 30 million people. How to do it? The only rational solution would have been to ask Russia to give them part of Siberia or what. How would this be done? You see, we have to be ready to these mega catastrophes. We know, for example, that we don't even know if it's nature or just uh, or human global warming that the temperatures are rising so much in in all those parts of uh, Emirates, Saudi Arabia, southern Iran, that whole parts are simply becoming unlivable there. What will happen there? Then, sorry, just to make a small detour with to refugees. You know, what bothers me so much, and it's prohibited by the left, uh, even to raise this question. Listen, the whole problem is now, will Europe be open enough? But, for example, did you notice the paradox? Most of the refugees are Sunni Muslims, most. Okay. Immediately below the war zone, there are some very rich Arab countries, which are Sunni countries. Emirates, Kuwait, Qatar, Saudi Arabia. What's their politics? They simply don't accept any refugees. All the refugees, if they're in Arab countries, had to go to poor Arab countries. Lebanon is full of them, Egypt, and so on and so on. Of course, these precisely are the countries, like Saudi Arabia, which are most connected with the West. And also, we should not forget that in spite of all terror attacks and so on, the big conflict there is basically Sunnis killing Shias and vice versa and so on. So you see, we have to politicize it. And again, the same with ecology, local ecologism is always, often, not always, but often openly racist. For example, I was my favorite place on earth because it's very cold and so on. How do you pronounce it here? Island, Reykjavik, the capital. Okay. And I was there invited to a TV debate because they wanted to build some chemical factory close to their co on their coast. And the ecologists were against, no, it will, it will ruin our beautiful coast and so on. But I told them, what do you propose? And they made it very clear to me that, okay, let's give the capital and build it somewhere else. So I told them, oh, fuck you. You just want your coast clear, you know. And you don't care if some city, African country city, in the sense of they don't care about it, it's spoiled. So I'm very much afraid against this clean, local ecologism. It's usually very egotist. The second thing... I hate so much all this bullshit about sustainability and so on. If you look closely at, at, at these self-sustainable houses and so on, they usually, to construct them, does much more ruin there. My ideal is, I spoke with a German ecologist who told me, you know what would have been the best way? That we pack as many people as possible into big, dirty megacities, and just keep it, keep the nature around like the Japanese solution. They, I think, more or less, if I know it correctly, they try to pack all the people into 30% of the country. And they try to keep as green as possible the others. Uh, so again, I see, uh, I see so many uh, problems here that we really have to 
change our, to change our attitude in a much more collective, large-scale thinking. We don't even know, you know, like when Trump and his guys say, but we don't know what is, it's not sure that it's global warming. My answer is, that's what makes it even worse. We don't even really know what is happening. You know, because we should always remember that all those statistical data, they are mythical. Like, we live now under the impression that if global temperature raised for whatever, two, two degrees Celsius, something like this, if they are beneath that, it's okay. If they go up, it's a catastrophe. But we don't know that. The catastrophe may be with one degree and a half, or maybe Earth can survive three degrees and so on. The other thing I worry very much, I've written a short text on it, is this incredible oscillation between fear, panic, and renormalization. It's like with Trump. You get panic, oh, it's fascism, and you get Nancy Pelosi. Oh, it's normal, no problem. I, I spoke with some of my Chinese friends, you know, when they got that air apocalypse, they caught it, terrible air in Beijing and in other big cities. It's really tragic, because you know that now in Beijing you have many new cheap tourist agencies. You know what's their offer? They do daily trips out to the countryside. Their only promise is, we will take you to a place when you can see the sky, you know, for that. <laughs> but they told me, my friends, <coughs> the horrible thing is how quickly the situation was re-normalized. People just get used to it. You no longer wear just that white cotton mask. You wear the real, I call them Darth Vader masks, you know, uh, Big ones, and you simply get used to it. You listen to the news tomorrow, can I go out without a mask or not? And life goes on. What I fear is how, what I fear is this oscillation between catastrophism and then immediately this renormalization. I don't know, I'm a pessimist here. I try to avoid the logic of some of my even more pessimist, ecologically oriented friends who claim the only thing that can save us is a serious catastrophe. Like a mega catastrophe, well, I think this is a risky strategy. Because, you know, who knows who will take over after? Maybe a guy will take over in comparison with whom we will praise the good old Trump times. You know what I mean? But uh, I just think, again, that what we can do now is just write about it, make it clear how all these strategies of individual culpabilization, of renormalization, and so on, all this mythic thinking of setting some limit, like, oh, if we're just below two degrees, we are safe. No, we don't know what's happening. Maybe, maybe it is up to a point, uh, a natural, because, you know, we should, that's the first also myth, myth to be debunked. There is no good mother nature that we humans with our hubris are destroying. Nature is a dirty bitch. Are we aware? I always take this example, uh, 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 how do you call it, uh, oil reserves. Are we even aware what kind of mega ecological catastrophes had to happen in the past of our Earth so that we get oil reserves today? So the lesson of this is not, oh, it's natural, we don't have to worry, but the lesson of this is, I think, 
There is no easy way back. There is no pre-given natural balance where we just return to that and we are safe. Nature is caught in catastrophes and so on and so on. So we have to, again, we have to think and because, you know, the problem is that when we have real dangers, ecological threat and so on, the ability of people to delude themselves is incredible. This willingness simply not, and I can understand it, like, you know, you read about ecological catastrophes and then you go out, there is sun, nice weather, and you say, my God, this is nature, it cannot really change. I don't think, I think that our attitude towards ecology is more or less the attitude of, fuck, not literally, fuck you, you know it, you wrote about your wonderful book on fetish. It's of fetishist denial. It's, I know very well, but still I don't believe it. I don't think we talk so much about ecology. There is this superstitious childish strategy beneath it. If we talk a lot about catastrophe, maybe it will not happen, you know. Just talk a lot to, and unfortunately I claim, even in politics, many fake leftists are doing this. If you write thick books about revolution, it's one way to make it sure that it will not happen. There is wonderful passage in George Orwell, early, from late 30s, where he, he says that leftists, intellectuals, like to talk about need for the revolution just to make sure that nothing will really change. And I think that many American academics like to do this, I follow, you know, the big problem is do I call you black or African-American or what? It's much better to have this debate than to really go together with black people. I notice only this correlation. Most of my politically correct friends, the more they are politically correct academics, less they really have black friends and so on and so on, you know. It's a very comfortable way, this official political anti-racism. So, Sla again... Slavoj, we should maybe aim one more question. Um, I love you. That's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> uh, maybe a gentleman in the blue shirt... Opportunist, you see, you move to the center. From the left, you move to the center. <laughs> what comes next? For whom did you vote uh, uh, ten years ago? For Schwarzenegger, probably, no? <laughs> Because she's your Austrian colleague, you know. <laughs> Sorry, let's go on one. Uh, hi, Mr. Zizek. My name's Yanai. Um, thank you for speaking today. Um, I had a long question prepared about flows of affect and liberal fascism. But, and liberal? Uh, liberal fascism. Fascism. But um, I'm wondering how you're feeling right now after an hour, uh, two hours and 15 minutes of speaking. Is this a criticism of no, me no, or a compassion? A <laughs> because it's because, ambiguous, you because know. Because I, so, yeah. I have what I like to call flows of affect. Huh? I mean, not no, but what I, I like to call, but, but, but okay, what, sorry. what is generally called that. And um, it's often I think it's related yeah. to the physical feeling of anxiety, sensation of anxiety, but I don't like to use that term so much because it submits itself to uh, medicalization. Yeah. And it, but rather it feels more like a form of resistance. Um, not against what you're saying, but against all of these ideas that we are constantly having to weave through on a day-to-day -day basis, members of modern, 
uh, contemporary society. It's schizophrenic. Right now I'm holding a book called Anti-Oedipus, Capitalism and Schizophrenia, and I just had to start a new medication that is generally prescribed to those with schizophrenia, even though I'm not schizophrenic. No, but what? Um, are, okay, sorry, sorry. What's your question? Because yeah, see, I will try to answer it. The, the question: point, capitalism and schizophrenia. The question is: How might we all become somewhat schizophrenics in the future? In Why do you think? Uh, and also, how are you feeling? No, uh, let me answer first this right Deleuzean question. You know that I, although I have a great appreciation for Deleuze generally and so on, but I think that many Deleuzeans even are deeply bothered by this of how, with all their praise of multitude and so on, uh, or whatever, uh, or uh, 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 molecular and so on, but today's capitalism works like that. It's no longer the old cent centralized edible capitalism. My big problem with Deleuze is that uh, today's capitalism is post-edible. I, so I don't see anything subversive in repeating this criticism of Deleuze and so on. And that's my big problem with, I appreciate her greatly. She wrote one of the, her best book, I think still is on Hegel. Her, 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 I'm talking about Judith Butler, of course. My problem with her is just this. The type of subjectivity that she describes, and I know she's not Deleuzean. You know, this uh, as a model, this, let's call it this uh, performative, self-enacting, self-transforming subjectivity, refashioning itself through performative rituals, and so on and so on, no longer uh, rooted in Oedipal identity. My point is only what's so subversive about it. To put it in very brutal terms, my problem with Judith Butler's theory is that, that oh, this endlessly plastic, performative, self-constructing subjectivity that we, you get the pure form, for example, in her early big bestseller, Gender Trouble. What if I claim that this simply is the predominant form of subjectivity today? And that all the neoconservative attack on it is just a losing battle uh, reaction to it. So I have here the problem. I'm not saying precisely not that this means we should return to some old patriarchal authority. Of course not. I just think that all this celebration of multiple dispersed anti-essentialist plastic subjectivity, what's the big deal? But what you said about liberal fascism, here work begins. Because what I am afraid is, you know, one of the bad manners and intellectual laziness of the left is that when something obviously bad is happening, instead of thinking, they apply the old names. Oh, it's fascism and so on and so on. Where I'm not saying Trump is better, but whatever he is, it's a little bit ridiculous to call him a fascist. Because it's a new, as you said, if it's a fascist, we should immediately add liberal fascist, you know, it's no longer the old, simply totalitarian fascism. It's a fascism which most of your personal freedoms and so on, freedoms, so it's something new is emerging, not only here, also in China. China is an authoritarian regime, but pretty liberal at private level and so on. You know what I mean? We are getting something which a new form, literally, of liberal authoritarianism, where, that's the paradox, uh, 
the more social processes are becoming non-transparent, something is happening up there, you don't know it, the more we individuals are addressed as responsible, freedom of choice, and so on and so on. You know, all this emphasis of you have to recreate yourself, it all depends on your choice, on your creativity. But the more we do this, the more global social processes are, again, perceived as non-transparent, it just happens. Who knows what's happening? Like, who predicted, apart from some conservatives and many leftists, who predicted the 2008 uh, crash and so on? How, how, how little we know about society today. So what I'm saying is that I think that some, worldwide something genuinely new is emerging. A new form of global, of political form of global capitalism. And just to call it too fast fascism is too much of intellectual laziness for me. I'm not saying that it's much better. In some aspects, it can even be worse. You know why? Because that's why I defended Julian Assange when people reproached him, but why do you criticize or bring all the materials mostly against the United States? Isn't Russia, China, aren't they much worse? I agree, and I'm not totally defending Assange. But I think that... You know why one should nonetheless bring out all the stuff about the United States? Because to put it bluntly, in China nobody thinks that they live in a free society. The limits are very clear and so on. You don't need there to bring out materials showing how people are controlled. Haha, <laughs> it's a joke, everybody knows it. In Russia it's also more or less. But the problem with you Americans is how you are controlled but you still think that you are free, no? And so it's important to make you see how, you know, the most dangerous slavery is the slavery which is, which you don't even see, which is experienced as freedom. So the important thing is to redefine in a very elementary way freedom. What does it mean, freedom? I'm not trying to brainwash you into this old Marxist stupidities. It's just formal bourgeois freedom. But if you say I'm free, and if I ask you, in what sense are you free? Mostly you would have said freedom of choices. I read what I want, I go where I want, I pick up a job that I want. Haha, <laughs> of course, if you get it. But, it's the, but I think that in the best European tradition, even nothing to do with Marxism, freedom nonetheless means something more. It's not just freedom of choice within the coordinates of what is given. It's also a freedom to change these coordinates themselves. And there we are getting maybe less and less freedom. You know, I don't want just the freedom to select when I go to a store, well, I don't know, strawberry cake or chocolate cake or whatever, you know. I want a more radical freedom. Why to have just a patisserie, other type of store, other whatever, to remain at the level of this welfare example. So I think that it's interesting that the more we talk about freedom of choice, the more the socioeconomic system in which we live is perceived as unchangeable. We cannot do anything there. 
And I'm not, again, trying to sell you any old-fashioned communist bullshit. Even honest conservatives know it today. Like, it's interesting how Fukuyama himself is no longer a Fukuyamaist. He himself recognized that, that what is happening now with new political processes, with ecology, with, with, brain, with biogenetics, and so on, it renders impracticable his vision of uh, liberal democracy, of parliamentary liberal democracy as the highest stage, and so on and so on. And that's what I think was the real historical message if there was one of, of, uh, of September 11th. It was the end of the Fukuyama dream. The 90s were the big epoch of Fukuyama dream. Now that's over and we don't know what to do. So again, I agree with your question, but for me, it's a big question. Are you aware that we, in spite of all neo-Marxist or whatever attempts, maybe you know, please teach me, I... Who really knows what is happening today globally? Where are we moving? It's simply, I even don't like the term neoliberal capitalism. I think it's the ideology, but if you look closely at what is e e effectively happening, I claim state is getting stronger and stronger states, if anything. It's not that, you know, it's just, okay, they get rid of healthcare, that kind of stuff. But as to the operative, economic, military role, states are getting stronger and stronger. Neoliberalism, in the sense of give all the power to markets and so on. This is just a stupid ideology that developed countries are trying to sell to the less developed countries to break them down. While what they are effectively doing, from Reagan, beginning from Reagan, in his practical politics, Ronald Reagan was a brutal Keynesian, engaged in, in, and now Trump is doing the same, military spending and so on and so on. No, so I even doubt very much the term neoliberalism to describe, to characterize what is effectively going on. We lack what my friend Fred Jameson, and when I mean my friend, I don't mean that I always agree with him. My friend in the sense that he also secretly likes multiplexes and shitty commercial movies. <laughs> Not, what he calls cognitive mapping. I don't think we really have a kind of a even vague global idea what is happening, where we are going. Although tremendous things are happening. Schluss, I think that's a, schluss, damit, no? a good schluss. I think that is a wonderful place to stop. I'd like to thank you and Slavoj. I want to I'm grateful to your patience. Thanks very much. And you know, Lacan defines the real as that which always returns to the same place. I hope this is real and that I will return here. Thanks very much. Thanks,